nerds. It's time to suit up and nerd up. Launching badass rockabilly track. Now signing a legally binding contract that will turn you into Santa Claus. Time to save the world with some wrestling, video games, movies, horror, and more. Launching ANS in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. Merry Christmas and welcome to a very special and merry edition of the podcast. So we're going to break kayfabe here and let you behind the scenes a little because truth be told, we weren't planning on doing an episode this week. But then we realized that would mean putting out a very late review for Spider-Man No Way Home in the Hawkeye series finale. So here we are recording very early on Wednesday just to get those reviews done. So what Damon's trying to say is there's no AEW and we only got a couple of news stories for you folks. But also, Christian, we're going to be breaking down the brand new Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness trailer because it literally just dropped this morning. And as a very special gift for you this Christmas, we're actually going to go sponsor free. Aw, shit. Sponsor free. That's right. It's totally not because we just didn't book any sponsors because we didn't think we were doing that. Exactly. No, it's for the people, Damon. <laughs> it's totally just out of the goodness of our own heart. We swear. All right. But before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters, we're mere podcasters with opinions. Alright, so Christian, we only really have two news stories right now to talk about. And I mean, it is Christmas week, so the news cycle usually slows down during this period of time. Mm. And really, like every other article is about like Spider-Man No Way Home really just destroying the box office and breaking records left and right, so... But with that being said, we do have a couple stories of note. Uh, first up, Variety is reporting that Disney Plus is developing a Nick Fury series, of course, starring Sam Jackson. There are no plot details available at this point. Uh, we just know that Jackson will be set to reprise his role and that Kyle Bradstreet will be the executive producer and the writer on the series. So I was underneath the impression that the Secret Invasion series was like a low-key Nick Fury series, right? Yeah, that was my impression as well. And I'm trying to think of like a storyline that I would even want to see from a Nick Fury show at this point. I don't know about that. I think there are plenty of cool stories that they could really like dive into from the comics. Um, there's this whole like backstory with him and his brother. His brother's this villain called Scorpio. Uh, he's got this weird like group of like henchmen. They dress up as different like zodiac signs. It's some really weird 60s spy shit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they could also do like a whole like Secret Avengers thing where like Furies like sending out like different Avengers on like Black Ops missions and everything. I believe at one point there was a series, you know, based on that. There's also the whole Secret Warriors uh, storyline where he's got like a, a group of agents who are kind of hidden um, that no one knows about. They have secret powers. Uh, I believe Quake's part of the team and Yo-Yo, um, which they actually used already on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., obviously. Uh, but, I mean, they could definitely go that route since I don't even know if Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Are, is like continuity anymore, especially after this episode of Hawkeye. So, 
not to break anyone's hearts out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Secret Avengers, you know, I think he like sends out like different Avengers on Black Ops missions. I mean, it was mostly like Black Widow and Hawkeye. But, mm -hmm. you know, what I'm trying to say is there's plenty of cool storylines you could tell with Nick Fury. Um, but there's also a whole lot of other Marvel characters out there yeah. who <laughs> I would love to see get a series. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm fine with it as long as it's quality and, you know, we get plenty of other shows, which seems to be the case, honestly. Yeah, I guess I just think the first thing that came to my mind would be like an almost like a Men in Black adventure for Nick Fury, you know, just running around solving these little like mysteries in the MCU. Yeah, I mean see him in his flying car mm -hmm. you know i know we got to see that with colson on uh agents of shield but it'd be cool to see fury in a, a flying convertible uh -huh. right? i got at this point like how many fucking shows can they possibly put out there because think about all the rumors and all the shows that are actually announced already we've got an iron heart show coming around the corner at some point uh i mean she hulk's happening this year moon knight's happening this year and then plus you know you're getting a season two of loki and probably hawkeye i'm guessing at some point so i mean they're they're running out of months to put these shows <laughs> they want you to never leave your house they want you just to consume their content and that's it <laughs> no and i'm wondering if they're good because right now the formula seems to be like one star wars or marvel series at a time you know, like, are they going to eventually break that? Like, are they going to have to start doubling up on these series? Obviously, because, you know, life hates me and wants me to have to review two shows <laughs> at once. So, yes, it will happen. It's a it's eventually going to happen. <laughs> but I mean, that's not a bad. No, I love I love all the content. So, you know, give it to me. Also, the other story we have this week is Michael Keenan has been added to the cast of Batgirl. Oh. Um, and of course, he's playing fucking Batman, right? <laughs> so I guess this news broke when Warner Brothers released an official 2022 movie preview kit, and it featured an updated cast list uh, with Michael Keenan's name on it uh, underneath the Batgirl film. So, I mean, this is kind of a huge surprise because we were just speculating a while back whether or not Backer was kind of part of that Snyderverse. So this is definitely surprising because we were just speculating whether or not Batgirl was going to be part of the Snyderverse, or at least adjacent of the Snyderverse, because J.K. Simmons is reprising his role as uh, Commissioner Gordon in mm -hmm. the series, because J.K. Simmons is reprising his role as Commissioner Gordon in the film, and the last time we saw him, you know, play the character was in the Snyder film. So if this story's true, it just means that, you know, they like J.K. Simmons in the role, um, so they decided to bring him back, but... It, I don't know if this means that Batgirl takes place in, like, the Burdenverse, if you will. Or is something going to happen during this Flash film that brings Michael Keaton's Batman to whatever their continuity is or something like that? Yeah, like, they break the multiverse mm -hmm. here, too. A lot of multiverse uh, breaking <laughs> right now happening in comic book films. Which honestly would have to be the case because we know that they had a completely different Commissioner Gordon in those Tim Burton films. Exactly. So, um, and I can't remember the actor's name right now. So unless they try to pretend that it's the same guy, I don't know. I'm probably overthinking this, but, you know, that's what we're here for, right? <laughs> Also, another interesting note is Michael Keaton is supposed to be reprising his role as Batman in the Supergirl series that was announced. 
And we know that Supergirl is going to be featured in the Flash film along with Keaton. So, I mean, if all this pans out to be true, it seems like we're going to have plenty of Michael Keaton Batman in our life in the, for the near future. Man, Keaton has really set himself up. I mean, he's he's good to go in Sony Marvel, regular Marvel, and in DC at this point. <laughs> it's crazy. That's right. He's the fucking vulture. Exactly. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> you know what I wouldn't mind seeing, Christian? What? The return of Danny DeVito as the Penguin. Just like for like one scene. Like it doesn't have to be a whole movie or something like that. But I think it'd be really cool to see that. He can do it. I, I feel like he would do it for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even if it's in like, you know, the whole Flash film, you know, just for a brief moment or something. I think that'd be really cool. Like see him in like Arkham or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. With all the Michael Keaton news lately, I've been really nostalgic for those first two uh, Bird and Batman films. So... I, don't know, I think I need to go rewatch those soon. They're classics. Oh, we also got some John Wick news. It seems that Chapter 4 will be bumped an entire year. It'll be coming out in 2023 instead of 2022. Oh, shit. Well, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they also have a series coming out, too. Yeah, I don't know when that series is for, though. Yeah, I don't know. I'm wondering if that means that's going to be delayed also. Did they give any reason why they're pushing it back a full year? Uh, no details dropped just yet, and you would think they would want to release it as soon as possible because of just how big of a wave there is for Keanu Reeves right now, especially with The Matrix dropping this weekend. So, No, that, I mean, that's true. I'm wondering if they're having like production delays due to like COVID or something like that, because we're seeing that happen across the board. So that really does it for news this week since we're recording so early. Uh, but we did get a trailer drop for Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. I'm sorry, Stephen. I hope you understand. The greatest threat to our universe is you. So first up, we hear a voiceover from Strange in No Way Home. You know, the one from the trailer where he says, the multiverse is a concept we frankly know little about. Uh, then we get a little montage action. Uh, we see Strange in a broken world, which includes the Sanctum. Um, everything looks super desolate. Uh, so obviously something went horribly wrong here. Uh, we get brief glimpses of Wong, uh, American Chavez making her MCU uh, debut, uh, Wanda's hand sparking up some chaos magic, which I totally just made sound like a strand of weed. Then we see Steven watch on as Christine Palmer, the love of his life, gets married to someone else apparently. This could be definitely foreshadowing some shit about to go down because we know how crazy Strange can get about Christine just from that what if episode alone. Uh, and then we see a person falling through a portal that might be from American Chavez since it's star shapes, which is kind of what her portals look like in the comics. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, we do know that America Chavez's ability is to just literally punch portals and they usually create these like designs, most likely a star most of the time. Um, and just rewatching the trailer over and over again, just the detail of how it looks like it's a shattering star makes it makes me definitely think it's her ability at work there and it looks cool so i'm i'm into it i'm super big into her character so uh during this whole montage though we do hear another voiceover ad it was the only way but i never meant for any of this to happen 
Well, just from the comics that we've read and even just the recent film with No Way Home, you know, we can we we know how arrogant and how foolish sometimes Doctor Strange can be. And, you know, if his life is on the in the shits, he's going to try and do something maybe a little too drastic at times. And just this this entire like opening gave me that vibe of, oh, he's going to do something that really fucks stuff up, especially after everything we saw with No Way Home. No, I agree. And I mean, like I said before, like my big red flag was seeing Christine getting married, uh-huh. <laughs> especially after seeing the lengths he was willing to go, you know, to save her, you know, in that episode of What If. I mean, what we've seen and what we know, there's no way that he has a healthy reaction to, you know, the love of his life being married to someone else. I can't wait for the snarky comments coming from Wong about, you know, his love getting married. <laughs> So next we see Strange reaching out to Wanda, who seems to be at peace. Uh, she's not surprised to see him thinking he's coming to make her answer for Westview, but that's not the case as he asks her what she knows about the multiverse. This whole scene kind of teases a team up. Uh, it's been rumored that Wanda's actually supposed to be a villain in the film, which if that ends up being the case, I could see it being more of the Darkhold manipulating her, uh, which we do see kind of at the end of WandaVision when she hears the voices of her, you know, kids, you know, somewhere lost in the multiverse. So maybe that's what causes her to turn on Strange. I mean, in my mind, she's still just on that book inside the house. And this might just be, you know, the physical form that she chose to have meet up with Doctor Strange. Like, I don't know if this version of Doctor Strange will be able to tell right away or or just how powerful, you know, Scarlet Witch will have been at this point. But, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see if she does become the villain, how powerful she's been since the time we saw her in WandaVision. Or if the, you know, rumor of, you know, Doctor Strange floating towards her during the ending credit scene of that was true or not. Oh, my God. I totally forgot about uh-huh. that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean... I could definitely see that. Like, you know, she senses Strange is coming, so she projects a version of herself out there in the field to kind of, like, keep him off the trail. And part of me would just love to see, like, a villainous version of Wanda. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know how dangerous she can be when she becomes unhinged. So uh, we'll see if we get there. Well, hell, even, like, the moments we got at the beginning of this trailer could all just be stuff that she's putting into reality. Like, just to torture Strange, like seeing, you know, the person he loves get married and stuff like that. So who knows? Oh, that's a good point. So anyway, after that, we see Strange and American Chavez uh, in a very comic book accurate outfit, I might add, uh, staring outside of a floating doorway over what seems to be some kind of structure that I can't really identify. Um, but the space uh, they're floating in looks very similar to what we saw in the uh, Loki series finale when they're in uh, Kane's Citadel at the end of time. But anyway, there's wreckage and rubble floating all around them. Uh, They're staring on at that structure that I can't identify. There's something glowing in the middle. There also might be someone standing in the doorway with them, which might be Christine, but I can't really make them out. Uh, Christian, what do you think is happening here in this scene? Well, with magic, anything could possibly be going down, especially with Scarlet Witch in play. But, you know, we definitely know that he will be going up against other fellow wizards and stuff like that. So, I mean, this could even be just a mirror dimension in some type of fucked up reality. Or, I mean, it depends on what they're going to be doing with the multiverse. Because I do agree with you, this kind of does look like a fucked up version of what happened at the end of Loki. But, I mean, does that open the door for then, like, Sylvie to show up and try and get to a different world? Because she's probably stuck there. 
Who the hell knows, Christian? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anything's off the table at this point. So next we see Mordo, who last time we saw him pledged to hunt down all the rogue sorcerers in the world. Uh, He apologizes to Strange in a voiceover. We're going full montage again, if you can't tell. Uh, But then we see a dark cloud heading over one of the temples uh, with Strange and crew looking on. Then we see Wanda in full Scarlet Witch mode, uh, looking spooky as all hell, just like she did at the end of WandaVision. It looks like she's casting a spell of some sort. Then we see a battle with Mordo with a bunch of explosions and a uh, battered-looking Wong, uh, who, spoilers in case you haven't seen No Way Home yet, uh, is the new Sorcerer Supreme. Uh, Mordo then says, I hope you understand the greatest threat to our universe is you, uh, referring to Strange, of course. Uh, Once again, we're in full montage mode. Uh, We get flashes of Strange shooting tentacles out of his hands or dragons of some sort. Uh, It seems very similar to what we saw him do uh, when he absorbs all that incredible demonic power in that What If episode everyone loves. You know, when he becomes Supreme Strange. Uh, Then we see one of those tentacle monsters. Not the one from the What If episode. Um, I haven't identified this one yet, but it looks different than the one we saw throughout that series. But anyway, it throws a bus at Strange in American Chavez. Uh, Strange casts some badass spell, whipping up a mystical buzzsaw and cutting it in half, the bus that is. Uh, It was a very Green Lantern moment. I don't know what you thought, Christian. No, yeah, I definitely didn't think about it being a Green Lantern thing, but it totally is. I mean, that's as long as it's not coming out of that sling ring, then it's fine. You know, then it's not copyright infringement, right? Yeah, it's not gimmick (laughs) infringement. (laughs) Because I don't think I've ever seen Strange do that in the books, but I mean, it was cool. I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, when I saw the tentacle monster, that was definitely the first thing that popped in my mind was the what if episode. Uh, But you're right. I mean, that monster definitely looks significantly smaller and a little bit less devastating (laughs) in in the grand scheme of things. But the abilities that he's showing off definitely remind me so much of like what we were getting from that what if episode. And it makes me wonder, like, is it visions? Is it him actually, you know, trying to gain more power and maybe he's you know getting some of the same aspects of that character yeah are we on the road to getting a live action version of strange supreme i mean i'd be extremely down to see a live action version of the character i'm just wondering because he seems so maniacal in this versus like what we got in what if where you know he'd definitely be a little bit more depressed yeah i agree (laughs) because the way the what if series ends i mean you know, Strange Supreme really does get redemption kind of for himself by, mm-hmm. you know, saving the entire multiverse. And he volunteers to watch over that uh, pocket dimension orb thing uh, that has Killmonger and Infinity Ultron battling it. I mean, we did joke after the series finale of What If, like, what a horrible decision it was to entrust Strange Supreme with that responsibility. And who knows, maybe that burden cracked him again. But this might be a completely different version of Strange altogether. Then uh, Strange comes face to face with a dark version of himself who looks very much like Strange Supreme from What If. I don't know if that's really the case here, but if it is, that would be fucking awesome. Uh, (laughs) I would love to see Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, do a live action version of the character. I know this was something that we were kind of hoping for when we were watching the series originally, um, but definitely not something we were expecting to get. But anyway, during this brief scene, uh, the dark version of Doctor Strange says, it looks like things just got out of hand, all the while looking insane as all hell. Um, (laughs) And that's pretty much where the trailer ends. 
But just from this brief two minute teaser, this film looks awesome and I'm even more excited to see it than I was before. I do hope that Mordo doesn't get lost in the shuffle of whatever this madness is going to be because I was curious to see what it was going to be like with him going after all the, you know, folk that have been using magic unwisely and seeing how if like, you know, he's absorbing the power or what's he doing to like take on um, like Doctor Strange and you know, especially with him in this trailer seeming to know that maybe Doctor Strange is going to do something bigger than, you know, we've anticipated. That's probably going to fuck up the multiverse in the first place. But I'm also still excited to see whatever Scarlet Witch has been cooking up because I, I definitely want to see her trying to do something to get her kids back. Well, I remember, too. I mean, there's tons of rumors that Nightmare is supposed to be in this oh, film. Yeah which would be completely huge. Honestly, I don't know. Like, I wasn't the biggest fan of the first Doctor Strange film. Like, I, I enjoyed it, but I could give or take Mordo. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm fine with them pausing that storyline and, you know, telling the story that they need to tell, you know, in this film and then maybe, mm. like, you know, coming back to it at a later date or just kind of interweaving it here. I wasn't super invested in Mordo, so... I could be patient and wait for his storyline to play out, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, when you see him in a trailer like this, heavily featured, you just have to imagine, or at least hope that they're not just shoehorning him in, you know, for no reason. No, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, as far as him getting lost in the shuffle, I'd be fine without him in the film. So. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> God knows they're going to have plenty of other characters they need to devote time to. So Exactly. But yeah, this is still my most anticipated film uh, coming out in the next year or so. Uh, and I believe that's May 6th, right? That's right, May 6th. Knock on wood, that doesn't get pushed back like uh, John Wick. Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> All right, Christian, the time has arrived. Spider-Man No Way Home finally swung into the theaters. Let's talk about it. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Spider-Man No Way Home ahead. Full spoilers ahead. You have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. Don't. Look, there has to be another way. There isn't. They're a danger to our universe. You're not gonna take this away from me. Peter. You're struggling. Damn everything you want. While the world tries to make you choose. This is all my fault. I can't save everyone. With Spider-Man's identity now revealed, Peter asks Doctor Strange for help. When a spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. This was directed by John Watts and stars Tom Holland. So after two years worth of rumors, leaks, and a whole lot of speculation, Spider-Man No Way Home is finally here. And the question is, after all the hype that started seemingly after Spider-Man Far From Home premiered in theaters, can No Way Home possibly live up to the pomp and circumstance? And the answer is, fortunately, an astounding yes. So even with the two and a half hour runtime, on paper, the plot of No Way Home seems like an almost impossible undertaking for a film. I mean, with too many characters to serve in any meaningful way, with the strong possibility of sacrificing story in the name of fan service for the sake of fan service. But once again, the MCU has somehow pulled this off, 
and it really is an achievement that should be applauded, because Spider-Man No Way Home not only celebrates three eras of Spider-Man on film, but also gives us the most complete version of the character ever on the screen in the form of Tom Holland's Spider-Man. But before we get to that, let's talk about the film itself. No Way Home, from start to finish, is a nostalgic-infused joyride. It's incredibly well-paced, with the two and a half hours feeling as light as breezy as possible. Director John Watts wastes no moment of runtime here. Most every character is given a moment to shine, from heroes to villains. And all my fears of some of the appearances being a glorified cameo were quickly put to ease. I mean, yes, amongst the villains, some had more to do than others, but that made sense for the story that they're trying to tell. Also, on a performance level, no one here was just cashing in a check. I mean, honestly, Alfred Molina and William Defoe almost steal the show, showing plenty of scenery, but still managing to feel like they belong in the same universe, or multiverse, if you will, as the new franchise. And with all the film's moving parts, because there's a lot going on here, Tom Holland never gets lost in the shuffle, which was a huge fear of mine meaning this is definitely his story as he puts on his best performance yet as the character. And spoilers, I know we warned you at the top, but I'm going to say it again, spoilers, just in case. Um, he's not the only Spider-Man in this film. Because after a year or two of rumors, we get to see Toby and Andrew suit up again, as their versions of Spider-Man are also a big part of this film. And damn, did they bring their A-game. When I first heard the rumors of, you know, all three Spider-Man being in this film, I just kind of assumed Toby and Andrew's appearances would just be for a scene or two. But that's not the case at all. They are legitimately in this movie for a good portion of it, moving plot along and not only enhancing Tom Holland's Spider-Man, but also brilliantly bringing closure to their versions of the character. I mean, the chemistry all three Peters have is powerful palpable, and every time they share the screen, it's cinematic gold. Now back to what I was saying though, with Tom Holland being the most complete Spider-Man, and warning once again, spoilers, but what I meant by that, and mind you this is my own personal opinion, um, I always thought that Toby was a great Peter, but like his Spider-Man always felt a little stiff. And this might be partially due to Raimi really paying homage to Ditko and Lee's original run on the comics. But because of this, Toby's version of the character never felt like the Spider-Man I grew up reading in the comic books. And on the flip side, when it comes to Garfield, like he was a great Spider-Man and really like nailing the character's wit when he's in the webs. But unfortunately, his Peter, I don't know, something just didn't click with me. And I think part of it has to do with him being just in subpar films. Holland, on the other hand, is the most well-rounded of the three, but he felt like he was just, I don't know, missing something. But I think this film really solves that problem. The MCU was originally trying to spare us from retelling the origin story yet again, and I always thought it was kind of implied that everything happened with Uncle Ben, we just didn't see it on screen. But in No Way Home, we see him go through that fundamental life lesson on what it means to be a hero. When spoilers, Aunt May dies. And it really fills in that missing piece to the character and really helps him reach his purest form the most recognizable version of the character when it comes from page to screen. And the fact that the other Spider-Men were there to help him on his journey is just perfect symmetry. 
He truly learns here what it means to sacrifice, making the ultimate unselfish choice at the end of the film to protect his loved ones. And at the end, it feels like we get back to the roots of the character, resetting the table for the next chapter of his story. He's essentially alone now, and he's stripped from all the Iron Spider tech and the advantages of being Tony Stark's protege. And we get back to basics, really only armed with the lesson he learned from May and the other. It's a coming-of-age story that I wasn't expecting to get in this film. And really, when you get past all the spectacular bells and whistles, and they are spectacular, that are in this movie, that's what the core of this film is about. It's really a coming-of-age film, and I think that's why I'm going to go ahead and give Spider-Man No Way Home an A. This is the closest I think the MCU has ever felt like capturing the spirit of the comics. And that's saying a lot because, I mean, top to bottom, they've been doing a hell of a job. But with that being said, I don't think I really need to go ahead and recommend this film because, of course, you've already seen it. But damn it, go see it a second time and enjoy. Now, I'm not going to go too heavy into the story of the film, as I believe I share all the same sentiments with Damon here. But my biggest fear walking into this movie was wondering if they were going to be able to balance everything. As just reading and keeping up with all those rumors made this film almost too ambitious to be good. But like my co-host so eloquently stated, somehow, you know, the MCU was able to give just about every character the right amount of screen time without the film feeling like a pure fan service trip. I mean, they really did all of our Spider-Man justice in this film, bringing closure to Garfield's loss in Amazing Spider-Man 2, having Toby, you know, take the lessons he's learned throughout his films, including him embracing the Venom suit, you know, stop Tom Holland's Spider-Man from going down a dark path, and then truly wrapping up the trilogy for Tom Spider-Man as this felt like the end of the high school era for Peter. And while I really, really enjoyed this experience, to maybe you know give it a few critiques, I would say the first act felt a bit rushed as it really pushed forward towards the, you know, the more multiverse elements of this film. Consequences for Peter's identity being revealed and being accused for murder don't really affect the, the overall story. In the end, it's pretty clear that that wasn't the story that they were interested in telling in this film. Though Pete did get a pretty good lawyer to get him out of all of it. Visual effects wise, most of the film looked great, but you could tell where they took some shortcuts here and there. Um, there were moments in the CGI that were kind of shaky in comparison to the previous spider flicks, especially after just having rewatched all of the Tom Holland films. And while I did really like the redesign for Electro, I felt Sandman and Lizard were leaving a bit more to be desired. I'm sure they weren't trying to break the bank, but they could have at least have updated the Sandman look. But I know that they were just trying to capture the feel of those first appearances they had in their Spider films. But yeah, again, if you're one of those crazy people out there that listen to spoiler reviews without actually seeing the movie, I'm telling you, you gotta see this one while it's still on the big screen. The MCU has again rewarded its fans and I'm also sure that this film can captivate new audiences as well. I'm giving Spider-Man No Way Home an A-, and, and as long as Sony doesn't try to break away from the MCU again, I'm excited for the future of Spider-Man. Alright Christian, so let's do some more spoiler talk. Uh, yes. We didn't talk about the end credits scene at all in either of our reviews. So in the scene, we see Eddie Brock drunk at a bar, uh, getting basically filled in on the history of the MCU and all of its superheroes uh, from some bartender who seems rather annoyed at this point. Uh, all of a sudden, Brock starts to tingle and he disappears, uh, seemingly being called back to his universe after Strange casts his spell. 
but we do see him leave behind a small portion of the symbiote uh, sitting on the bar. And that was the end of the scene. So this might just be me getting my hopes up, but it really felt like this moment was kind of setting up the MCU to get their own version of Venom. Or at least like retell that story, hopefully the right way. <laughs> we can only pray and hope, Damon. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to throw shade, but I was actually pretty happy that, you know, Tom Hardy's version of Venom didn't show up in No Way Home, at least, you know, besides the little end credit scene. Uh, and just the prospect of like getting to retell that story proper, you know, in, you know, the MCU is just incredibly exciting. I'm wondering how it gets to New York from where they are. I think, what was it, like Hawaii or something like that, that he was vacationing at the time? It can attach itself to a different host. True. You know, and get there and travel to New York. We know that, <laughs> well, we do know that the symbiote knows Peter Parker and knows Spider-Man. And, mm -hmm. like, he recognizes him when he sees him on the screen uh, during Venom 2. And that's why he gets pulled into the multiverse uh, once that spell goes awry, because he knows who Peter Parker is. Because in the film, they kind of explain that they have like a hive-like mind. Yes. So, I mean, so it's not like beyond the realm of possibilities that the symbiote would be seeking out Peter Parker here. Um, so, I mean, and everyone knows Peter Parker lives in New York, right? Exactly. Also, I think Peter's like incredibly vulnerable at this stage of his life. Mm -hmm. I mean, just losing Aunt May and basically all of his friends. I mean, so going with that like classic black suit like storyline, it just feels like the natural progression of, you know, Peter's story at this point. No, I agree. Plus, I just really want to see a new version of Venom. Like, I'm, I'm begging for it <laughs> personally. Uh, but no, I agree. I think this would be the right time to do it, especially with him separated from his friends. But at the same time, I can see them easily writing in a reason why, you know, MJ and Ned will be coming back to New York with them, you know, feeling like something's missing with them being at MIT and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I could definitely see them still finding a way back in. But I would like there to be one film where he's just on his own and trying to figure out everything. So if, if this is the way that they do this, that's how they bring in, you know, the black suit Spider-Man and this is the time for him to find himself. I'm I'm super down for it. Uh, I definitely think it'll be a couple of years before we see the next like Spider-Man film to start off another trilogy anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the, the story did come out this week after all of the success in the box office, of course, that Sony and Marvel are openly working on the fourth film of the franchise. And we've heard all the rumors of an eventual like Venom Spider-Man crossover happening sooner than later. So and honestly, like you could tell that story in two parts, like the first film, you don't even need Eddie Brock. It could just be Peter mm -hmm. and that suit. And then it, you can work your way to, like, you know, the MCU version of Eddie Brock. Um, I don't know if you bring Tom Hardy back, you know, to play that role. I mean, the comic book version of Eddie is completely different than what we've gotten in the last two Venom films. Um, so you could recast the character also. I mean, the MCU has established now that these multiverse variants can be played by different actors. So, mm. I mean, that completely, you know, opens up the floodgates to, you know, 
tons of possibilities. I mean, I'm excited for whatever Spidey adventures we get next either way. And maybe we'll see that Craven film eventually. So. Well, Craven, Craven's uh, in production right now, in the middle of production. So that is happening. That's right. It's a separate thing, which I, I don't know how I feel about that. But we'll we'll see how Sony handles anything anyway with uh, Morbius and all that shit on their own. Oh, God, I have a Morbius question. Oh, what, what is it? <laughs> Michael Keaton playing Vulture is in that trailer. Yes. Is that a variant in that universe? Like their version of Vulture? Because we know in Morbius, he mentions Venom. Mm-hmm. So obviously Morbius exists in that Venom universe, which is not part of the MCU. And that's, you know, set up here in this film. So how is Michael Keaton vulture in that trailer and why are there signs for a criminal you know spider-man in that trailer because yes and it doesn't seem like tom hardy knows who spider-man is so is that whole film taking place in the time period that no way home is happening i i guess yeah i'm confused christian i've i don't know what's happening there but yeah, it totally opens up a whole can of worms. That that because I just kind of assumed watching the trailer, like, oh, after No Way Home, the multiverse is just broken, and all these characters mm. are all interacting and part of the MCU now. But that's definitely not the case at the end of this movie. So what the hell's oh. going on in that Morbius trailer? Um, I mean, would you be opposed to, like, Venom taking place in maybe, like, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man's universe? No, but it's still, you know, he still would know who Spider-Man was, right? You would, would think. Still be... Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. Um, I mean, does he outright ever say he doesn't know who Spider-Man is? But he's he's confused in Venom 2, right? Yeah, when he sees he's Spider- confused when he sees him. I don't know, it, man. It, it doesn't work. Whatever yeah. they're doing doesn't work. I mean, he'd be the <laughs> worst news reporter of all time, right? Exactly. <laughs> God, Christian, this series just flew by. I can't believe we're finally here. We're at the season finale of Hawkeye. So let's break down. So this is Christmas. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for the Hawkeye series ahead. Ending spoilers discussed. You have been warned. And that's where I draw the line. There are no lines in this business. And that is why I have to leave this business. Eleanor, don't be rash. I want you to know that I have been keeping an insurance policy. Eleanor. Copies of everything in a safe place. In the spirit of the holidays, I'm going to give you a minute to think about what you're starting right now. I don't need a minute. So we kick off the finale with Kingpin in all his massive glory coming to meet with Eleanor. Last week I speculated the picture was of you know them in her penthouse, but we see now that the two of them met up at the tracksuit's new hideout. Here we find out about the true nature of their relationship as it's uncovered that Eleanor had been working for Fisk to pay off her late husband's debts. Eleanor brings up the deeds she has committed throughout this season, admitting to killing Armand and framing Jack for Sloan Limited, but now her daughter Kate is getting too close to learning about Kingpin and Eleanor wants out. Foolishly though, Eleanor threatens to expose Wilson Fisk if he goes after her and promptly leaves. So man, I was not expecting to get like this much Kingpin in this episode. Like he's here from the start to the finish and I loved every second of it. Um, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's the way they were shooting him, but he looks fucking massive in this episode. 
like bigger <laughs> than he ever did in Daredevil. Like, do you think they were doing some like camera tricks to make like Vincent D'Onofrio look? Bigger? It's possible because yeah, he felt a bit wider, like in general, like a little bit more like the comic book character. Yeah, and I mean, it's, especially in this scene here when he's sitting at the desk across mm. from Eleanor. Like, he looks like a fucking, like, mountain of a man, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Just a beef house. So, I don't know. It's all in the shoulder pads. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. At first, with the scene, I was really worried that they were going to make Eleanor more of a sympathetic character with her, like, you know, owing her husband's debt. But then you start going through the list of all the shady shit she's done, you know, for Kingpin. I mean, even going as far as, like, framing her own fiancé. And I think it really tells you all you need to know about, like, the true nature of the character. We cut to Kate and Clint, you know, watching the video of the meet between Kingpin and Eleanor. Kate is absolutely floored by the revelation that her mother has been responsible for just about everything. Clint, being the voice of reason, explains Fisk is going to go after Eleanor in a big way. When Kate tries to take on the challenge alone so that Clint, you know, can go back to his family, Clint finally tells Kate she is his partner and explains he is not going anywhere until this thing's finished. Clint's so smart here. He knew that line was going to totally help Kate, like, you know, pull herself together. Mm. And you can literally see how much that one line meant to her. We get plenty of Kingpin in this episode as we next see Maya meet up with him only to find Kazi is already there. Fisk here dressed up in his fancy Hawaiian shirt is actually ripped right out of the pages of the Spider-Man family business one-shot comic, keeping Vincent D'Onofrio as stylish as his comic book counterpart. I did see a lot of people bitching online about this look, but I liked it. I mean, guys, it's, it's part of the comics, man. Relax. If anyone can get away with wearing a Hawaiian shirt, it's going to be Kingpin because no one's going to say anything against him. So, I mean, the guy's literally walking around with a fucking diamond headed cane. Come on. Yes. <laughs> well, he's definitely prone to questionable fashion choices. In this scene, Maya claims to be giving up her hunt for Ronin, but would like a few days off to clear her head. And while Fisk goes along with it, it's clear to everyone that Maya is on the outs. Kingpin shows his frustration after Maya leaves, telling Kazi he is going to need to remind everyone this city belongs to Wilson Fisk. So I really enjoyed the exchange between these two characters, Kingpin and Maya. It did really set up the relationship. And I'll be honest, like at first I was like, oh my God, look, he, he's, he's signing to her. Like he really does fucking care about Maya. And that might be the case. But then like the moment she walks out of the fucking room, he's like, all right, let's kill her. Like, I was like That's some cold hearted uh. shit right there. Um, so I just love this moment. It really gave you a feel of like who Kingpin is as a character. You know, nothing comes before business, even family. So, and if, if you... So it really goes a long way to, like, you know, set that up for viewers who've never seen the character before. To be fair, he was having a bad day, right? <laughs> <laughs> he told her he loved her. Yeah. <laughs> Cold-hearted shit, Christian. Back with the Hawkeyes, Clint claims they need to prepare new trick arrows for tonight's events, all to the surprise and delight of Kate. We get a fun montage of them preparing tons of crazy new trick arrows. While Clint prepared magnetic arrows, explosive arrows, and even another Pym arrow, Kate goes ahead and paints them purple and makes sure that they're all labeled. So Christian, you know I need any excuse to use a label gun, so I love this scene because it's totally exactly what I would do if I had, you know, a hundred trick arrows. Um, this, this scene was everything. You could just see the joy in Kate's eyes, like building these arrows. And it was great that we got to see all of them in action pretty much 
you know, by the end of the episode. They begin discussing Eleanor's Christmas party as again, Clint reminds Kate of the hard choices and sacrifices a hero will have to make in these types of situations. But for the first time, Kate opens up to Clint about the very first scene in this season in which she recalls Clint saving her and how his actions during the Chitauri invasion made her feel like anyone can be a hero as long as they're brave enough to do what's right, no matter the cost. It'll be interesting to see if like hearing other people's perspective of him will like change his own personal view of himself because we've heard it throughout this series when push comes to shove hawkeye sees himself as a trained killer and that's pretty much it well i mean we saw in this moment alone like just how much the words kate just said meant to him you know, especially showing that her readiness as well. No, I agree. It did seem to actually like resonate with them. With the party set and the tracksuits in position, Kate and Clint make their way into the Bishop security holiday party. At the party, we see that the LARPers have disguised themselves as the waitstaff. Meanwhile, Jack Duquesne, who did in fact get out of prison, is there walking around with a sword on his hip after being bailed out by Armand's son, as we learn from a conversation that Jack has with Armand's great-grandchild. Christian, I want you to admit that this is one of your favorite characters in the series. <laughs> this was a fun moment the fact that he's you know on trial for murder with a sword and walking around with a fucking sword <laughs> with a fucking sword <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad you came around because i know how much you hated the character in the first episode i mean he is still too much of a goofball in my eyes Don't for this entire series but shut up it is what it is. <laughs> you want a solo disney plus series for swordsman no i do yes, not yes you do <laughs> Don't lie to the people. Anyway, it's not long before Yelena shows up to the party, followed by Eleanor, as our pieces are all set at the Bishop security firm. Unbeknownst to Kate, she saves her mother as she pulls Eleanor into a waitstaff area, away from the sights of Kazi, who is across the streets with a sniper rifle. Here, Kate confronts Eleanor about her working with Kingpin and her trying to kill Clint. Eleanor claims Kate has no idea, you know, the amount of shit she's been in because of Kate's father's debt to Kingpin. But before she can explain any further, Jack Duquesne interrupts trying to get in a word with Eleanor after, you know, being framed. I love that Jack has more animosity towards his eight-year-old nephew than he does towards Eleanor, who just framed him. <laughs> the fact that he's feuding with his eight-year-old is just brilliant. But anyway, Haley Steinfeld's performance is great here. Um, and throughout the series, like, she does a great job of being able to, like, switch gears and give us a scene like this. Like here, she really just shows how heartbroken and betrayed she is by her mother. I just love how she can balance that comedic tone but then have a serious scene like this. Everything really begins to kick off when Hawkeye walks across the windows and Kazi actually attempts to take him out. Clint noticing a laser sight on a wine glass nearby is able to avoid the shot as Yelena watches on. Kate and Eleanor noticing the commotion ditch Jack in the waitstaff area. Jack draws his sword claiming it's finally his time, all while Clint is getting his gear from a LARPer to make his way downstairs and draw the fire away from everyone else. So like, Kingpin's this like criminal master mind and this is the plan he comes up with to take out Eleanor. <laughs> I mean, he only sends in one assassin yeah. who isn't Bullseye, by the way, <laughs> to like do the job. It just feels like poor planning. On his it doesn't feel like the kind of statement he would try to make because I feel like he would have sent in a huge team of people that would surprise the entire party and then start wiping out people. Like that feels more Kingpin than just one guy or trusting the track suits in general who all seem like morons. So Yeah, I mean, well, that is true. But I mean, we do see like an army of track suit mafia guys like come in 
you know, mm. after all this shit goes down. So I don't know if they're all kind of waiting in the wings, you know, just in case something like this happened. Uh, but you got to figure that he would know that Hawkeye and Kate could possibly show up and, you know, cause an issue. But honestly, at this point, I'm not even sure if they've established whether or not Kingpin knows that Hawkeye is Ronan. It never seems like he knows that Hawkeye is Ronan, in this episode at least. Because that's definitely interesting, because Kazi, right? And most of the tracksuit mafia at this point know that Hawkeye's Ronan because he does, like, reveal himself uh, in that parking lot scene. Well, he reveals himself after he's already taken out everyone else. Oh, that's true. Okay, I forgot about that. Kate, while checking out the scene, catches Yelena heading to the elevators after Clint. Again, the chemistry between these two explodes as Kate attempts to stop Yelena from getting to Clint by pressing all the buttons on the elevator. During their skirmish, Kate's dress actually gets ripped off, unveiling her updated Hawkeye gear. Just the look on Yelena's face when Kate slaps her is just gold. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just hoping if there is a season two of this series that Yelena gets to be a part. Or just make a whole show based around the two of them together. Buddy cop series, whatever you want to do. Why not? <laughs> Eventually, their struggle makes it into some cubicles at the Bishop security firm where one man stayed either working late or is clearly stealing info. I'll let you guys decide as I was too enthralled by all the quips flying back and forth between Kate and Yelena. This is just another example of how well they've done with the action sequences in this entire series, because this feels straight out of a fucking comic book. I mean, it's really well done. and so like so interestingly shot that it like, you know, takes a scene that could be very much like colored by number and really makes it entertaining as all hell. Clint on a lower level is able to fire off a smoke bomb into Kazi's sniper spot as tracksuits begin storming into the Bishop security building. Above them, Yelena breaks free of Kate, jumping out of the window with a grappling hook and gets a couple missed shots off at Hawkeye as she passes Clint's window. Kate, chasing after Yelena, decides to use her grappling hook and nearly gets herself killed, but luckily slows her momentum down in the nick of time. So this moment to me was just as much about like Kate catching Yelena to herself that she could, you know, pull this off. Yeah, because what other reason did she have to jump out the window and use like just a little bit of rope to kind of hold herself <laughs> onto that. I was like, you're going to die doing yes, this. Yes, and she almost did, right? <laughs> she did hit a you know, sloppy hero pose at the end, though. So, I mean, it was close. Such a pose. I think really it was more about showing like how much Kate still has to learn. Kate, while intercepting the tracksuits, has a brief moment with Tomas, who is actually grateful for her advice, having gone to a Maroon 5 concert now with his girlfriend instead of Imagine Dragons. Right before another tracksuit member shoots down Kate, Jack Swordsman Duquesne disarms and knocks out the gang member, along with using his skills to take out several more. Kate apologizes for her mother's actions, but the always whimsical Jack seems unbothered by the situation, but makes note that like everyone else, he has lost track of Eleanor. Jack is absolutely living his best life here. Uh-huh. <laughs> you could tell he was like ready for this moment. Like this entire series for him was leading up to this moment. Well, how often do you get to use a sword, right? <laughs> exactly. It does feel like a weird use of the swordsman character, but I don't know. Overall, I kind of like it. I won't lie. Upstairs, Clint is setting traps for Yelena and the tracksuits that did make it into the building. Kazi actually catches Clint by surprise here and begins fighting him. As the tracksuits catch up, Clint is able to knock out Kazi with a picture-perfect German suplex and set off his traps, stopping the rest of them getting to Yes, him. I totally popped for this moment. You could always tell when one of the fight-like choreographers is a wrestling fan. Good form too by Clint. Yeah, exactly. Perfect he bridge. Pops, he pops the <laughs> hips and everything. 
As Clint makes his escape from the building, his zipline snaps, forcing him to catch himself on the Christmas tree there at Rockefeller Center, in which he actually finds an owl when he looks inside the tree. Yeah, this whole moment was weird to me. During the commotion, the LARPers get Kate her gear. Kate recommends that they continue to help people get away from the building, and even though the LARPers are all cops and firefighters, they decide it's time to suit up to help Clint and Kate in their LARPing gear for some reason. You know, instead of, you know, calling for some backup due to all the commotion, because, you know, they are all law enforcement and they can totally call in the police to come a little earlier. Yeah, or like flash your fucking badges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Like, it is a comedy, but this was a bit of a stretch. Maya back at her apartment seems like she's getting ready to leave out somewhere. But after looking at a photo of her and with Kazi and her father, it seems that she changed her mind about something and is going to join in at the fight at Rockefeller. Kate intercepts more tracksuits before helping Clint get down from the tree in the most destructive way possible, by taking down the actual tree itself, with an acid arrow of course. This causes Clint to land in the center of the ice rink below, with the tracksuits swarming from every direction. I just love how content Hawkeye was to be in this tree, like uh -huh. he didn't seem like <laughs> he was in a hurry to get down from it. I mean he shouted some stuff about having an exit plan, but I, I doubt it, he yeah. seemed stuck. <laughs> At this point, he is older, so maybe he just needed a break, I guess. <laughs> Kate joins Clint in the middle of the ice rink and finds out he actually geared up as well in his new Hawkeye suit that looks straight out of the Secret Avengers comics. Hawkeye then gives Kate some of his additional trick arrows, and Kate lights up, asking if it's time. And indeed, it is time, as they stand back to back. Our Hawkeyes use all the trick arrows they got, Clint most importantly firing off an electromagnet arrow that rips away all the tracksuit's guns. I'm glad that they set that up with this arrow uh, because like as the scene started, I was wondering, I was like, they're just sitting ducks in the middle of this rink. How can they possibly not get massacred by the tracksuit mafia if they all have guns? Because they're archers, damn it. That's how. <laughs> I don't care how skilled of archers they are. There's no way they were getting out of that situation alive if the tracksuit mafia all had guns. Standing against overwhelming forces, Clint and Kate seem victorious, but then a truck flies out of nowhere at them, and Kate catches it with a shrinking Pym arrow, saving both of them. And when Kate and Clint, you know, try to figure out what to do with this now toy-sized truck, that same owl from earlier reappears and carries off the truck with a couple of the tracksuits still in it. That owl is totally going to eat them. <laughs> what a horrible way to fucking die to get eaten alive by a giant fucking owl <laughs> and then what the hell were these guys plans in the first place just jumping the barricade of the ice rink trying to like take out both hawkeyes i don't know because they could have just broke through the ice or I don't, I don't know how that works i don't know what or... their game plan was because it's not like they couldn't see them coming so exactly <laughs> and how were they expecting to survive the impact anyway the tracksuit mafia are the worst. <laughs> Kingpin deserves better thugs. I'm pretty sure those pin particles do wear off at some point. So yeah. I think that truck is just going to expand. But thank God, you know. Hopefully it's it, not in a tree, though. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> thank God they work in a way where it shrinks everything and not just the truck. Yeah, right. <laughs> Kate then goes after her mother after a report came in from the LARPers who saw her leaving the building. Clint, protecting Kate as she leaves, takes out two goons and almost gets a return in Kazi as well, but Kazi's able to stop the arrow before it reaches him. And before Clint and Kazi can get into a fight, Yelena attacks, pushing Clint back onto the ice. I love this exchange between Kazi and Clint here, 
Kazi say nice shot and Clint yelling back, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bit of a show off shot though, right? Yeah, I mean, he splits a whole arrow to get Uh, three people at once. Full on Kevin Costner Robin Hood here. Yelena is not the only one to come in with a surprise attack as Maya comes sliding in, taking out a couple tracksuits before standing face to face with Kazi. In the fight between Kazi and Maya, Maya attempts to reason and bring Kazi to her side, begging him to leave the organization, but Kazi laments that this is his life. And in my eyes, he's coming off a bit jealous here of Maya's position of power. Kazi states it's too late for him and attempts to kill Maya, only to reverse the arrow that Kazi had swung at Maya into his own gut, killing Kazi in the process. I mean, it is a comic book show, so until I see a body being loaded up into like a meat wagon, I don't truly believe anyone's dead. I did enjoy this scene though, you could tell that Maya was crushed um, by having to, you know, make the choice of, you know, possibly killing Kazi. And I'm wondering if Kazi does somehow survive this, if we don't see him possibly in the Akko series more unhinged and more like his comic book counterpart. Exactly, because I feel like there's still so much potential there for his character. Oh, absolutely. Meanwhile, on the ice, Yelena and Clint battle it out. Yelena getting the better of Clint for most of this fight asks him what actually happened to her sister. Clint knowing and stating that she won't believe him anyway, still attempts to tell her what went down at the Soul Stone, claiming Natasha sacrificed herself, but Yelena can't accept that fact. I was wondering how they're going to play this because like, there's no way that Clint is going to try to tell her the entire story because there's no way that anyone who wasn't there could possibly fathom what the hell was going on in that moment. I do feel like in part of this fight that Clint might have been kind of pulling his punches and like making the choice to kind of like reason with Elena. Oh, absolutely. Like I felt like he was letting her just pummel him throughout the entire fight. And I don't know if the reason behind that is because he just figured he's really no match for a Black Widow, or if it was more out of loyalty to Natasha. We cut away from the other fights to find Eleanor attempting to make a break for it with her security guards. But as she makes it to the car, she finds the driver dead and with a thud, her security officer dead as well. Ripping off the car door like it's nothing, Fisk attempts to get his hands on Eleanor, but Kate swoops in to stop him firing off a couple arrows. Fisk getting hit straight near the heart takes no damage here and even swats away Kate like it's nothing. But before he can get his hands on Kate, Eleanor gets in the front seat and drives the car right into Fisk, throwing him into a toy store. So while the Netflix series really nailed the psyche of the Kingpin down, Mm -hmm. I felt the MCU here really captured the true physicality of the character from the comic books. Because I remember reading like the Marvel handbook as a kid because, you know, I was that nerd. Um, And one of the passages talking about how like Kingpin's girth is kind of deceptive, you know, that he's not just some big fat guy, that he's actually just solid muscle. Um, My first introduction to Kingpin in the comic books was during Frank Miller's run, where it shows like one of his training sessions is literally just him in his like boxer shorts killing a group of ninjas like that's how he woke up and trained every fucking day i mean this is a guy who's able to go toe-to-toe with spider-man who has enhanced like super strength so i really got a kick out of seeing like this version of the character portrayed on the screen i did have a small gripe with this moment in general with eleanor driving into him because and this is just me you don't hear the car move at any point until like she just randomly shows up and 
to get that angle, she probably would have had to have done a three-point turn just to get into that position to hit him like that. So the I fact love- that there's no sound in the background or anything just drove me a little. I nuts. think it was more to just you know. I think it was more about just startling the audience yes. with a moment. <laughs> I love that that sticks in your crawl, but not like the fact that Kingpin just gets up after that. No, like, no issue. <laughs> I believe Kingpin would. That's just that's who I think of him as a character. My, I, I have realism priorities. <laughs> Apparently. Yelena, using her Black Widow skills, is able to knock Clint around in all of her anger. In the end, it would take Clint whistling Natasha and Yelena's secret whistle to stop Yelena's onslaughts. Clint tells Yelena all the stories Natasha told him when it came to her time with Yelena at a young age, as we saw from the Black Widow film. He goes on to tell her just how much Natasha loved Yelena, wanting Yelena to be safe no matter what. Yelena still blames herself and believes she could have stopped Natasha from jumping, but Clint reminds Yelena of her sister's, you know, resolve, as no one really could have stopped her. And in this moment, Yelena chooses to help Clint get up as she begins her path towards, you know, hopefully letting go. So I did think the whistle scene was a bit much, because, like, why would he go to that, like, right off the bat? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, me and your sister were actually really tight, and I know your whole story. Um... But in the long run, it was effective. Um, and I really thought this episode did a masterful job of like juggling these three major fight scenes because they're all happening at once, but it never feels like disjointed. You're able to keep track of what's going on with who. And I never felt like any of the scenes were rushed. And with that said, you could really feel the difference in like the, the, the conflicts that were going on between these all three fights, you know? You have what's going on between Maya and Kazi, you know, it's a it's almost a power struggle. Then you have what's going on between Clint and Yelena, which is just has a completely different feel. You know, there's so much more emotion behind it because Yelena is trying to get revenge and believes that Clint is, you know, at fault here. So, I mean, I loved how they handled each choreography and it's, you know, just the little touches there in those fights. It's all about the nuances, right? While the emotional battle between Clint and Yelena was going on, Kate was actually attempting to trap the Kingpin. In this fight, Kate gets easily thrown across the room by the sheer power of Fisk's punches. Fisk goes as far as to break all of Kate's trick arrows, but while getting pushed by Fisk, Kate takes off one of his jacket's cufflinks and uses the snap trick she learned from Clint to activate all the arrows at Kingpin's feet, successfully knocking him out. I can't believe I didn't see this move happening like two episodes ago, <laughs> because of course that's how she's gonna like win the big battle at the end, you know, with a simple flick of the wrist. So um, yeah, this was a really well done scene though, and it felt like it was straight out of the panels of the comic books. Kate again confronts her mother as Eleanor claims now everything can go back to normal. Kate scolds her mother as she states things were never truly normal and that her crimes weren't as little as Eleanor makes them out to be. Eleanor tries to say it was all, you know, to protect and take care of Kate, but Kate still has Eleanor arrested for her actions. Honestly, even in this scene, Formiga's performance came out cold as hell, making Eleanor seem like she didn't truly care about Kate. But hey, in everyone's story, no one is the villain in their own eyes. She also kind of shows her hand here in this scene uh, when she starts talking about how Kate would never be able to live a life without the luxury that they've come accustomed to. Because in that moment, you could tell that she was really talking about herself. The cops would go on to search for Fisk in the children's store, but somehow he has disappeared. We then find Kingpin in an alley running into an angry Maya. Maya raises a gun to Fisk as he begins to claim they are family, and the camera pans up so we can't see what happens, but we do hear a gunshot. 
This scene really just mirrors that of Daredevil 15 as Maya shot Kingpin at point blank range in the comics. Yeah, we actually talked about this a couple episodes ago when we were talking about Echo's origin story. I was really surprised to see online the reaction to this scene. I mean, people were really losing their shit thinking that they just killed off Kingpin. Uh, and I mean, maybe that's the case, but like, even if I didn't know, like, the comic book, like, backstory between these two characters and how it kind of plays out, I think just the way this whole scene was shot lets you know he's probably not dead. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, <laughs> am I wrong here, Christian? No, not at all. Because, I mean, like, j just with that pan alone, I'm thinking he either grabbed her wrist mm -hmm. or even Kazi could have showed up and, like, attacked her from behind. There's so many yes. things that could have happened because we haven't seen it happen on camera. And we it literally just watched the guy survive getting, like, shot in the heart with an arrow, hit by a fucking car. He blew up. <laughs> <laughs> so even if he did take a headshot with that gun somehow, or maybe he, like, you know, tries to move out of the way and it grazes him. He's probably going to survive. Um, yes. you know, like you said, in the comic books, he ends up being blinded by this. It all ends up really playing well into the dynamic between him and Daredevil, of course. Um, and eventually he gets his eyes replaced with uh, cybernetics. Because that's comics, baby. That's right. But I'm going to say this one more time. I'm 99.9% .9 sure the Kingpin isn't dead. So relax. He's alive. I'm 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Clint, in a heartwarming moment with Kate, alludes to her making him a better person, though it was in a joking fashion. Also, he lets her know just how impressive her fighting and surviving Kingpin was before walking out into the night and also stating that they need to walk the pizza dog. Damn right it was, because you gotta figure, like, Clint as Rodin must have tried to at least attempt to go after Kingpin at some point, or he was just too scared to do so. In our final scene of the season, Clint Barton makes it home for Christmas to the excitement of his family. And of course, he brought along his new partner, Kate, and also Pizza Dog, aka Lucky. In this scene, Clint returns the watch to his lovely wife, Laura, with a noticeable S.H.I.E.L.D. agent logo on the back claiming to belong to Agent 19, who is better known in the comics as Bobby Morris, aka Mockingbird, confirming that that theory was true all along. Yeah, so I guess my Red Room theory just goes right out the window. <laughs> right out the window. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, I'll be honest, like, I almost totally forgot about the watch at this point. Um, mm. I mean, it's a nice little Easter egg, but I mean, God, we spent a lot of time talking about that fucking watch, so it was a little frustrating, I won't lie. I mean, there were people, like, writing articles about how it could possibly, like, tie in to those, like, um, to those time-traveling uh, gauntlets that they had in uh, Endgame. Uh, I thought at one point that it could be, like, Nick Fury's watch which I'm sure I wasn't alone, but Mockingbird mm. is a really cool character. So I'm hoping that somewhere maybe in like a second season, we actually get to see her in action. Um, I just know that there was a whole lot of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.S. fans who got their heart broken last night. <laughs> I mean, even watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. though, like I wasn't the biggest fan of her character in that series anyway. So I I'm fine with this change. She was actually going to get a solo series at one point. I think they mm -hmm. shot a pilot and they decided to pass on it. So because they did like write them off the show, um, you know, so she could continue on in her own series. 
But yeah, I'm with you. That version of the character really did nothing for me, so I'm okay with this. And I think it's kind of a cool idea. And think of all like the Mr. and Mrs. Smith storylines they could really like tell now. And before the episode closes, Kate and Clint share one last moment as they finally burn the Ronin costume. And Kate gives ideas for her superhero name. All of them, of course, being Hawk-themed and all of them, of course, being terrible. But Clint just decides maybe she should go as Cute title screen, Hawkeye. Oh, also they made me sit through their terrible musical number as the after credits scene, and now I can't get that goddamn song out of my fucking head. It definitely felt like they thought they had another hit on their hands, you know, along yeah. the lines of uh, <laughs> Agatha all along. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case, because a lot of people were disappointed with this, you know, end credits scene. And rightfully so, because usually they use it to set up, like, the second season, or, you know, get a quick, you know, character beat in, or some cool Easter egg. So, this did feel a bit of a waste. All in all, I thought this was actually one of the better, like, season finales for any of the MCU series on Disney+. And I don't know if it's because it's a much more contained story, but nothing felt rushed to me, and which has been a huge issue with some of the other shows. And I'm a huge sucker, so I was super happy to see Clint like finally make it home for Christmas. I really, I think the only thing I didn't like about this episode were the LARPers. <laughs> their, their stuff just didn't do anything for me. But everything else, like I love the action sequences. I you know love the moments that we got again with Yelena and Kate. I appreciated its consistency with the rest of the show. But I feel like I may have gotten my hopes up for more than this season was ever willing to offer. I was definitely looking for more in the conflict between Maya and Clint. And even their final battles with Kazi and Yelena were decent, but definitely weren't standout moments for me in this show. And while I'm sure they're just leaving you with like plenty on the bone for their future projects in Echo and a possible Hawkeye season two, this ending in general didn't excite me to the level of WandaVision or Loki. However, Kingpin's arrival is awesome and his fight with Kate was a good look into what the future of the more seedy side of the MCU has to offer. So in the end, there's nothing wrong with a simpler story and you can definitely take me wanting more to be a good thing in the long run. I just may not have been as satisfied as I wanted with this ending. Anyway, since this was the finale, what was your grade for the overall season? So I enjoyed this series a lot more than I was expecting to. And I think part of it has to do with it being such a contained story where we don't have world shattering implications on the line. Because if you really think about it, this is really one of the first like true street level MCU stories we've got it. I mean, I'm not counting the Netflix series because they haven't told me yet if they actually do count. Mm -hmm. So, um... I thought this was a fantastic introduction to the Kate Bishop character. I thought Haley Steinfeld did a great job capturing the true essence of the character from, you know, the comics. And I also think they finally did right by Hawkeye, by making him like a three-dimensional character that we can actually care about. Because before, he was just kind of a glorified background character. But this series really gave him a lot of depth and gave fans a lot of insight to like who Clint Barton really is. I mean, top from bottom, this show had some of the best action sequences in any of the Marvel uh, series so far. I really enjoyed watching Kate and Clint's growth as characters as their like journeys really end up like inspiring each other. And at the end of the day, I was really left hoping for a second season. So I'm going to go ahead and give Hawkeye an A minus. I mean, the series really gave me everything I wanted and then some. I mean, for crying out loud, we got Kingpin Christian in the MCU. Yes. <laughs>
For me, I really view this as kind of an improvement from what a lot of what we've gotten in the MCU uh, shows so far. I view the pacing of this so much better than what we got with like Falcon and Winter Soldier. Everything kind of wrapped up in the end in a way that, you know, felt satisfying to a point. And I do enjoy a more self-contained story in the end, usually when I watch a series. I just think I enjoyed the performances more than I enjoyed the overall story. Like I loved tons of moments from this show whereas like i loved every moment that we got with kate and yelena i loved most of the relationship between kate and clint the new characters that showed off with maya and stuff like that but i don't think i enjoyed the story as much as i think i was hoping to i honestly think i'm going to forget most of what happened in this show beyond you know several moments that we got with characters and I think that's what kind of lowers my grade a little bit more. But like you said, the action was on point. The, you know, the way that they shot it was super awesome. Just this past episode alone with that super awesome panning shot with uh, Yelena and Kate fighting between the rooms. I'm just not sure if this is going to be one of those ones I'm going to be clamoring to go back to later on when I'm, when I'm probably doing my Marvel rewatch. But for, for the most part, I did super enjoy this. So I'm going to be giving it a B. So do you think we're going to get a second season? I think this would be a series that's easy to do a second season in, uh, especially with the relationship between Clint and Kate. You know, if they want to like continue on Kate's training into becoming a hero and, you know, maybe start to you know bring in more elements of how she might want to make her own team and stuff like that. I feel like the second season would really just, I think, start to bring all that together. Yes. I mean, there's definitely a lot of meat on the bones still story wise mm -hmm. um, and in so many different directions they could really go into. I'm sure some of the story is going to end up playing out like in the Echo series that we know is coming oh, up. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, also, like I could see them continuing Eleanor's storyline in the She-Hulk series, because remember, that show takes place in a courtroom. Oh, for yeah. Most part. Um, and we know that Matt Murdock is supposed to actually make a couple of appearances. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Matt actually like representing her, especially if he sees her as a victim of Kingpin, which could end up scoring us a, a couple cameos from Clinton Kate or even Jack Christian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, to, especially since we do know that he's going to be involved in that series. Plus, it would be fun to watch Kate trying to defend her mom on trial, even though she's probably you know still upset with her. Well, she, I mean, she's the one who turned her in, so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, make sure to join us next week as the TV show breakdowns continue. We got Boba Fett starting. But besides that, that does it for this week. Damon, what are we talking about next time? Well, like Christian said, we'll be breaking down the first episode of Book of Boba Fett. Uh, and we'll also have reviews from Matrix Resurrections and season two of The Witcher. And of course, we'll cover all the happenings at AEW's Holiday Bash next week. My name's Christian. And my name's Damon. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. Merry Christmas! Oh, spotty bells, spotty bells, swinging through midtown. Oh, what fun to sling a web and take the bad guys down. Spotty bells, spotty bells, quipping all the time. Oh, what fun to swing around New York while fighting crime. <laughs>